The GIST is sponsored by The Great Courses, engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors. Courses like Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior. Get 80% off the original price for a limited time when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash GIST. And by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. It's Monday, November 10th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Raymond Burke, know this guy? Kind of the pain in the ass cardinal? All right. I don't want to get struck by lightning. But I don't believe in a vengeful God, and apparently Cardinal Burke does. You know what, though? I kind of like kingdoms. Kingdoms have their appeal. The Pope, he's a despot, and uh, Raymond Burke's been getting in the way of his agenda, his progressive agenda. So the Pope has demoted Cardinal Burke. Now, do you remember him? Cardinal Burke was the guy who criticized Notre Dame, the college, Notre Dame, when they gave an honorary degree to a pro-choice politician. That this politician was the president of the United States, Barack Obama, did not give Cardinal Burke pause. It never really came up, but he said he'd refuse to give John Kerry communion because Kerry has a stance on abortion that is contravening the teachings of the church, as does singer Sheryl Crow. And when Sheryl Crow agreed to play a benefit concert for a Catholic hospital, Burke resigned from the board. So Cardinal Burke, who does not like a good beer buzz early in the morning, he is a churlish scold. If theology were websites, he'd be Breitbart. If Catholicism were single-panel comic strips, he'd be Mr. Wilson. Not to imply that Pope Francis is Dennis the Menace. If anything, given Pope Francis's propensity for fostering hope and surprise and a preternatural ability to inspire joy in those around him, I'd say... The Pope is more of a Marmaduke type, if anything. But I just want to talk about Burke's old job. Now, you see it described in some news stories, the job he was demoted out of as head of the Vatican Supreme Court. No, 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 no. There's no Vatican Supreme Court. What is the point of the Vatican without all the crazy curly cues of ceremony? What's the point of the Pope without the pomp? Burke was the prefect of the Supreme Tribunal of the Apostolic Signatura. All right. And, you know, if you're raised like a Catholic kid, you used to know all the names of the prefects of the Supreme Tribunal of Apostolic Signatura. Like you used to know the heavyweight champions of the world. I mean, all right, I'll give you one. There's one exception other than this guy. There's Zenon Grachaluski. You know, it was, he was there for a little while. He's friends with Pope John Paul II. He's a Polish thing. But other than that, listen to these guys who are the former prefects. Vincenzo Vanatelli, Michele Lega, Augusto Silge, Francesco Ragonese, Bonventura Serati, Enrico Gaspari, Massimo Massimi. Oh, did they love Massimo Massimi? More, more, Massimo Massimi. Giuseppe Bruno, Gaetano Ciconani, Francesco Roberti, Dino Staffa, Pericle, 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 Pericle. Pericle Felici, Ariello Sabatini, Achielli Silvestriani, Gilberto Augustoni, Mario Francesco Pompeda, Augustino Valini, Raymond Burke, Dominic Memberti. I support the Dominic Memberti regime. Regime. Just for continuity's sake. In the show today, I will solve the world's problems in the spiel. That will be the spiel. Mike solves the world's problems. One problem has already been solved. WKRP has been released on DVD. 
if you've ever wondered whatever became of the creator of WKRP in Cincinnati, he's living on our air today. But first, midterm elections, what were the lessons? I'd say if you get the government you turn out for, my guess says that's sort of the problem. The midterms were about a lot of things, a referendum on the incumbent, as always, a dissatisfaction with the economy. It's improving, but but people don't feel it. But maybe some people have been left behind. A dissatisfaction with incumbents of all stripes, but pretty much Democratic stripes. But also, argues Jamel Bowie of Slate, it's about rot. It's about dysfunction. Hello, Jamel. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So the subhead of your piece called The Disunited States of America was... Gridlock is only a symptom why our democracy may be hardwired to fail for a generation. Now, by fail, do you mean Republican victories? No, I don't, actually. And it's been funny to sort of read some of the reaction to the piece uh, and people who are assuming I mean Republican victories. And I really don't. What I mean is sort of a government unable to actually take action on uh, any of the challenges facing us. Well, if you look back over the last hundred years, as I did, I think uh, so. there have been 50 elections, if you add up the House and the Senate, uh, midterm elections since the Woodrow Wilson administration. And in 43 of them, the party out of power, not the president's party, has won. Does this indicate that it's been failing all along? It can't have been the case that the public has been wise and it, the president is always the one to vote against in a midterm. The failure part doesn't just come from the fact that the president's party is losing seats in the midterm. That's like you said, that's pretty normal. It's two things. The first is that we shouldn't expect 2018 to look any different than 2014 or 2022 to look any different than 2018. That there is we have sort of divergent electorates with a midterm electorate of older people, uh, people who tend to be white, who are more affluent, who vote pretty much in every election. And then we have a presidential electorate of younger people, more diverse people who don't vote as often, but they do come out to vote for president. And by itself, this isn't the worst thing in the world. Mm-hmm. The, the midterm electorate is heavily Republican, and you can it's possible for the two sides to work together. There's nothing about polarization that makes cooperation impossible. The problem is that when you have this sort of demographic seesaw combined with, I think, the emergence of a norm among a substantial portion of the Republican Party that holds compromise as as sort of an ideological betrayal, that it's not just that they're opposed to liberal ideas or liberal policies, but that even cooperating with the maintenance or crafting of liberal policies is a betrayal that has to be punished. Um, And when you have those two things working together, it suddenly becomes very difficult to actually do anything with government. So I've seen it argued, I think by implication in your article and explicitly elsewhere, that it is a shame that the midterm electorate is so much smaller, that what, 83 million people voted versus 120 for uh, Barack Obama versus Mitt Romney. And sure, uh, we live in a democracy. It would be better if everyone took the time to go to the polls. And yet, and yet, and yet... Couldn't you make the case? I mean, some have made the case that if you don't even care enough to do the kind of de minimis in being a member of a democracy, registering to vote and showing up for a vote, then don't we fall back on that old hard trope that we get the government we deserve? And I think I think you're right. I mean, I, you know, I think for the people who did not vote in this past election, I think it would be 
and then let's say they're very much opposed to the Republican agenda. I think they would have themselves look at themselves to blame. But, you know, I think my argument is less about getting people to vote and more just about the what it looks like we're going towards if you have this combination of a demographic seesaw. Older people may have voted more in midterm elections, but they weren't necessarily more conservative than younger people. And then you have, again, this emergence of this anti-compromise norm among sort of the Republican base and among many Republican politicians. If Republicans were simply to drop that norm, or if a faction of the Republican Party were able to just beat it outright, then I would still be, you know, I'm, I'm a liberal, I would still be uh, unhappy with the policy that a Democratic president and a Republican Congress might make. But I wouldn't necessarily be unhappy about the state of our democracy, because, you know, that's just how things go. I know, but the state of our democracy, it does seem that you're looking at the 120 million as being the democracy. But the, in this case, the democracy was the 80 million. And though they don't represent many people, and as you said, you know, if you're someone who didn't vote, you have no right to complain. I kind of think if you're a Democrat who did vote, you should look at the fact that you're not convincing those others that it's worth it for them to vote. I think that you write about voter suppression. I couldn't agree with you more. There's real voter suppression. But if there's a problem, the Democrats have a problem in not expanding their midterm base to look like their presidential base, which logically is sort of like the base of actual members of a democracy. You know, the Republican Congress that was just elected isn't any less legitimate because it came from a narrower base of voters. I, I, I think you're right, though, that Democrats do have a responsibility to try to broaden their message. Democrats have to persuade or they're just going to keep cycling through these massive setbacks. And eventually, I mean, eventually, you know, if there's an economic shock or foreign policy shock, Republicans will end up winning the presidency. And so Democrats will not just be locked out of the Congress, but also out of the White House. I understand your point that it looks like the cycle is going to perpetuate itself, but I could think of a number of contingencies that would uh, disrupt that. And one of it would being such a charismatic, not just a charismatic figure, like Obama is a charismatic figure, but a charismatic figure who presides over flush economic times that people actually feel like maybe that would be the thing that breaks it. Or maybe just three Republican presidents in a row could be the thing that breaks it. Like there's a lot that could break it within the next 20 years. Yeah, that, yeah, that's absolutely right. And I guess I'm just sort of saying on our current trend lines, this is what things are looking like. And I think the usefulness of doing that is to say, what kind of problems does that create and how can we respond to those problems before they actually happen? Jamel Bowie is a staff writer for Slate. Thank you, Jamel. Thank you. Most of you listening to this podcast are lifelong learners like me. If you're not, good luck with Google, people, right? And the eBay, am I right? That's why you need to check out The Great Courses. The Great Courses are audio and video lectures from professors and experts. They got 500 subjects, history, art, music, science, philosophy. Here's one I'd like to talk about today. Understanding the mysteries of human behavior. Mysteries. A Duke professor, Mark Leary, he talks about science, he gets behind emotions, thoughts, and behaviors, he looks at evolution and culture, really explains things. And the way he explains things is via DVDs or CDs. And once you get one of these, they'll give you the streaming or online downloads that come with the hard version. You get to choose what you want, and also you get 80% off. Savings only available for a limited time. 
That's thegreatcourses.com slash gist to get the savings. Thegreatcourses.com slash gist. They were pirates. They were pioneers. They were FM radio DJs. Nothing was cooler. And the encapsulation of this was the series WKRP in Cincinnati. Now, if you ever watched that in reruns, up until now, you'd see Dr. Johnny Fever throw to an Eric Clapton album. And then it just wouldn't be Eric Clapton because the music rights became so hard to get that it basically destroyed the series. But now, for the first time, the complete series with all the real music, the real great 1970s FM music, is out in a CD set from Shout Factory. And I'm joined now by Hugh Wilson, who is the creator of WKRP in Cincinnati. Hello, Mr. Wilson. Hey, Mike. How important was the music to the show? If we couldn't have had the music, uh, we would have never done it. Uh, it when we uh, were originally uh, pitching it to CBS, uh, it was an MTM show and the, uh, the network, and both MTM, too, thought what we'll do is we'll use what's called sound-alikes. Yeah. We will have something that sounds like the Beatles. Or, and my reaction to that was, oh, dear, uh, let's just skip the whole thing. That'll never work. That'll be a disaster. Um, that would be like doing Buffy the Vampire Slayer without vampires or Three's Company uh, it, yeah, without it misunderstandings. Just be, it would just be nuts. But that's how they were thinking. And yeah. so the rights to the music, we shot all the MTM shows on film, and then somebody, I can't remember who, tipped me off to the fact that if I, if I shot the show on videotape, I'd be answering to a different union or something. It would be AFTRA instead of, I don't know, and that I could get the music for about half uh-huh. what it cost on film. So we were the first MTM show to, to switch to videotape. And that made it work. Now, since then, since you created the show, the economics around music rights have gone crazy. And it's not just you. It's Gorsese says that he never could have put the Rolling Stones in his early movies in Mean Streets. But I guess the music companies realize that you can charge an arm and a leg for this. And up until now, they weren't budging on how much they were going to charge you to air it in reruns. Is that right? You know, when Fox, 20th Century Fox, owned the MPM library, when they went back to relicense the music, prices had increased 10, 20 times, so they just said, out of hell with it. Or, and they also tried to release a first-year CDC that had sound, I don't know what it was. I watched about 10 minutes of one show and had to turn it off. I couldn't bear it. But yeah. One thing's clear, if the people in the music business are charging these prices, is because they think they can get away with it. And, you know, it wasn't just that the music was atmosphere. I remember specific episodes, and I went back today to find this one that I clearly remember because it was very funny. It also reminded me about something they always did on FM radio, where they spliced together a montage of six, seven, however many songs, and there was a contest to try to guess all the songs. Yeah, right. Right, because the plot was Dr. Johnny Fever, Howard Hessman, misreads the amount of money they're giving away in the contest, and it's supposed to be a $50 contest, and he says $5,000. The prize is not $5,000. You read the memo wrong. It's $50. $5,000 for the contest budget for the whole entire year. Oh. <laughs> so then Venus Flytrap comes up with the brilliant plan, we'll make the contest so hard nobody could win it. Well, I'm, I'll play this scene. Here is the montage they come up with. Name these six songs. 
And here is the first person they have on the line trying to guess. Too wild to tame the boys. Uh-huh. Tumbling dice, rolling stones. Mm-hmm. YMCA, village people. Uh-huh. Douglas Shade, Wayne Dude. Uh-huh. Straight on, my heart. Uh-huh. National Anthem by Francis Scott Key. <laughs> There must have been a lot of episodes like that where the music wasn't just great, atmospheric, authentic, but actually central to the plot. Absolutely. I, I was driving in my car yesterday and uh, Hot Blooded came on and I immediately remembered uh, using that music over Les Nessman, the, the news guy, where we did a scene. I can't remember. I think Les was maybe going to have his first date or something. And, uh we use that music over him getting ready for the day. It was hilarious, and it wouldn't have worked otherwise. Come on, baby, do you do more than dance? I'm hot-blooded, I'm hot-blooded. Why Cincinnati? How'd you pick that town? Uh, that was uh, arbitrary. I uh, First of all, I was trying to hunt around for letters. WKRP was the only... Uh, call letters I could find that weren't being used, and I, I guess that's because you could guess that WKRP was W-crap. Crap, right. So I figured that's why nobody used it. Then I was just sitting there saying, you know, WKRP in Jacksonville, WKRP in San Diego, WKRP in Cincinnati. I just kind of liked the way it sounded. Now, did you know much, anything about Cincinnati? Because I know that town, I mean, it became an important thing to that town, right? Yeah, it became very important, and you know, I I found out almost immediately from uh, uh, CBS lawyers that there was a WKRC, I think was the big, big AM-FM deal in Cincinnati, so therefore we couldn't use Cincinnati. A friend of mine uh, was in the radio business, Clark Brown, uh, he got me in touch with the people at the Cincinnati station, and uh, instead of saying, oh, no, you better not do that. They said, oh, my God, we'd love for you to do that, and we'll do tie-ins and all that. They were smart. Yeah. You know, the lawyers at CBS, they just wanted to have their ass covered and go home before. <laughs> and so I know it was MTM, Mary Tyler Moore, and that is the greatest, probably greatest workplace comedy ever. Yeah. And that was in a TV station. But it seems to me that you hit on a magic formula because there was authenticity to how eclectic a range of characters you can have in an FM radio station. I mean, there have been workplace comedies, you know, in magazines and workplace comedies in all sorts of workplaces. But it seemed very smart to have this be a radio station because you could have the cool black overnight DJ. You could have the crazy, you know, hippie punk DJ. You could have the program director who's maybe like a cowboy, the nerdy newsman. And that's all real. If you went to a radio station, you'd back then, you'd find people like that. Yeah, you know, I, I uh, before I moved to L.A., I lived in Atlanta and I was the creative director of an ad agency. And I knew all these radio people, I guess maybe because we all hung out in the same bar at the end of the day, and uh, there was uh, this guy, Skinny Bobby Harper, who was the morning man, who was a pal of mine. He, I just, you know, I got fever from him. 
Clark Brown was uh, wearing all these polyester suits. He was their sales rep. He's Herb Tarlick. <laughs> they kind of fell into place. I mean, I never saw a real-life Lonnie Anderson. No. But the rest of them, and even uh, the lovable boss, Mr. Carlson, who really had no idea what was going on, he actually was based on a guy that didn't run a radio station, but did run an ad agency. He was a wonderful person, and he kind of handed it, handed all the creative stuff over to the young people because he decided he just had no idea what was going on. Baby, if you've ever wondered, wondered whatever became of me, I'm living on the air in Cincinnati, Cincinnati WKRP. The creator of WKRP in Cincinnati, the complete series is out with all the music on DVD from the Shout Factory. Hugh Wilson is the creator of that show. Thank you, you. That's my pleasure. Just maybe think of me once in a while. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Mailing your letters and packages is so much better if you use stamps.com. This is especially true for mailing anything overseas. If you are anyone who has to ship to Zimbabwe, Brazil, or Cote d'Ivoire, you know, you got your package, you could kind of eyeball it, you could kind of estimate it, but you never really know. And how much do they really charge to mail to Cote d'Ivoire? Stamps has this program, every country in the world. I don't know, I haven't looked at it, but it probably lists Cote d'Ivoire and the Ivory Coast. It has both translations, and you can put it on the scale. Where do you get the scale? Stamps gives you the scale. You put it on the scale, and you find out exactly how much postage to send that thing to Cote d'Ivoire. What is the thing? Maybe it's ivory. Maybe you're sending ivory back to the Ivory Coast in a taking coals to Newcastle kind of move. So stamps.com allows you to buy and print official U.S. postage right at your desk. I talked about the digital scale, calculates postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail, and it does it internationally too. It's really, really easy. It's open 24-7. I mean, do we even say open? It's stamps.com. It's something that you have in your house. It's as open as the internet is open. If you're the kind of person who does any kind of bulk mailing, anything that ever requires a postage meter, really crazy not to have stamps.com. Right now, we have a promo code, the gist for a no-risk trial. It's a $110 bonus offer includes the digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage. Type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. And now the spiel. I've got answers. I would like to introduce a new segment to the show, a segment grounded in humility in conservatism. It's called Mike Solves the World's Problems. Andrea. Problem solved. Problem solved. Mike solves the world's problems. Wow, that's not a problem. That's a solution. Start right out of the gate with a solution, as provided by Andrea. So I was reading about some of the world's problems, and you know what? I would like to solve them. My gift to the world, no need to send me a thank you card. Your Rainbows and Garth Brooks' first new album since 2001 are thanks enough. Let's start off with the domestic. It's an easy lift because especially my intended audience can hear me as I speak in English. There'll be a big fight in the upcoming Congress over the employee mandate for health care. I mean, that's if there is an Affordable Care Act unless the Supreme Court blows it up or if the 
New Congress votes against it root and branch, as they said they would. And once they pass that vote, if the president forget what the word veto means, that, that could happen. No, it won't happen. But the big fight's going to be this medical device thing. But also, there is a provision of the Affordable Care Act that says all employers have to cover employees who work more than 30 hours. Almost all the Republicans, some Democrats say that's too much. 40 is a little more sensible. I mean, 40 is a full-time worker. So we want it to be mandatory that employers cover employees who work 40 hours. So one side says 30 hours, one side says 40 hours. In this installment of Mike Solves the World's Problems, I will give you the answer. 35 hours. Thank you. You're welcome. On to the international. China and Japan are feuding over some islands. The islands are 200 miles southwest of Japan, 200 miles east of China. In Japan, they call these the Senkaku Islands. In China, they call these the Daiyou Islands. Senkaku Islands? Daiyou Islands. You ready for the solution? The Daiyou Islands. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Solve the world. Okay, wait, wait. There's a bunch of these islands. Those are, that's just the name of the chain. What do you do with the individual islands? Let's take the second smallest island listed as 0. 0.0048 square kilometers. The Japanese call this very small speck of land Okino Minami Iwa. The Chinese call this Danan Zhaodo. You ready? Okino Xiaodo. Okino Xiaodo. You're welcome, China and Japan. You're welcome for that one. And no one lives on those islands, so this is not even the inhabitants will have to change what they call the islands. Uh, now from a part of the world claimed by two countries to parts of the world that are claimed by one country but would like to be a second country, breakaway republics, separatist enclaves like Scotland. We just saw Scotland had a vote to go independent, lost by a little. Scotland will stay part of the UK. Then over the weekend, Catalonia had a vote. Catalonia independence won in an overwhelming non-binding referendum. I will say that that is the most boring phrase in international news, the non-binding referendum. Maybe I could get appointed to the non-binding referendum beat. Seems pretty low stakes, right? Let's say you screw up a story. Well, it wasn't going to happen anyway, right? Or like, hey, you just wrote a really non-compelling story on that non-binding referendum. That was my intent. It's non-binding. No one really needs to pay attention to a non-binding referendum. So in this non-binding referendum in the Catalan region of Spain, 81% of Catalonians said, yes, we should separate from Spain, demonstrating the deep passions of the separatists or the deep practicality of the non-separatists who paid attention to the non-binding part of non-binding referendum. You know, I don't want to keep denigrating this and keep pounding the idea of non-binding referendum. For instance, the Guardian, the London Guardian, called it an informal consultation, also referred to it as a participatory exercise. To which I add the following phrases. It was a popular implication. It was a pretend pluplenary. It was a ballot, non-issue. It was a not-quite-right plebiscite. But this isn't Mike renames the world's problems. Although, that island thing, that was sort of my solution there. This is Mike solves the world's problems. So here goes. You ready? Scottish won independence. The Catalonians won independence. You ready? Scotland? I give you independence from Spain. Catalonia? I give you independence from England. Am I right? Am I right? It's a solution as much as that plebiscite is. All right, one more. 
Iran in the U.S. Iran's pursuing nuclear weapons. President Obama's writing Ayatollah Khomeini letters. Hey, don't do that. Doesn't seem to be working. Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic, past just guest, had a great take on this. He said the Americans want the Iranians to give up the program more than the Iranians want to, but the Iranians need to give up the program more than the Americans need to have the Iranians give up the program. All right, so you got letters. I don't know if they're in ink. I don't know if they're typed. I got a solution because I'm solving the world's problems today. This doesn't go through the Ayatollah. You go through his right-hand man, a guy who's maybe a little more pro-Western, definitely pro-practical, although it is true that the Ayatollah loves Victor Hugo. That is a fact. Anyway, you get some guy who's really close to the Ayatollah, but not the Ayatollah, and you get him to talk to Obama. And he says, listen, here's what we're going to do. There's no program. We're going to dismantle the program, but this has to be between us, all right? There'll be no nuclear program, but our religious leaders, he'll think we have a program, but what does he know from a centrifuge, right? The public thinks we have a program. All countries that think they have nuclear programs, they feel very proud of their program, but we really won't have a program. Can't tell the Israelis this. Can't even tell many other people in your cabinet, but don't worry. A lot of people won't die. So it's good. It's worth everything. Now, what you have to do in return is you have to ease our sanctions. But just like our Ayatollah, he doesn't know from a centrifuge. How many guys who are in your administration actually know where oil is flowing or where it's not? So just take off the sanctions. Let them pass. We won't have the program. And everyone can pretend that you're tough on Iran. We're tough on America. We have our program. You have your sanctions. We all win. yippee ki All right. We know the Iranians won't do this. I listened to the Iranian version of the gist, which has a segment called Masood Solves the World's Problems. He floated this, did not go over well. So this is the real genius of my idea. The president, even, even if the Iranians are not proposing this, the president just has to pretend the Iranians propose this. Just pretend Iran doesn't have a nuclear program. What are the Iranians going to do? Jump up and down and say, we have a nuclear program. We could blow up nuclear bombs. You can't do that. You're violating international law. You'll have the whole international community against you. The whole point of having a nuclear program is kind of denying it's for anything but peaceful purposes, but knowing that it is. So if you just deny that the Iranians have the nuclear program, it's pretty much like the Iranians not having the nuclear program. And you can force them into a Rumpelstiltskin style. We have a nuclear program and here is the reactor. And then you give the whole game away. Hey, Look, you think I'm wrong? So far, we have been very, very concerned, up to this point, very concerned that the Iranians have a nuclear program. Has that slowed them down a lot? Just play the I can't see you game like you do with a two-year-old, and they'll definitely spill their sippy cup on the international stage and totally overplay their hand. Listen, you might find it to be a terrible solution, but if you do, if you don't, I invite you to vote on my symbolic non-binding resolution. And remember the slogan of Mike Solves the World's Problems, there's a fine line between the Solomonic and the Moronic. Andrea. Mike just solved the world's problems. Yeah. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, the GIST's producer, is ready to solve Ukraine's problems. Oh, what? No, not the country Ukraine, the internet site, Ukraine, with those glorious videos of cranes. It's been taking a long time to buffer lately. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcast, has some solutions for solving the ongoing talk-to-music ratio mix. He advises more music and less Nesman. As executive producer of Slate Podcast, Andy Bowers is our highest-paid employee. Well, other than Jennifer. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a listen on Stitcher. You get our daily email at slate.com slash gist email. We are on Yo. Once you download the app Yo, subscribe to Podcast, and we'll let you know as soon as we're up. We're on Facebook.com slash Slate Gist. 
email us at the just at slate.com. Now, one part of me believes in rehabilitation, but another part believes that after what Mr. Horton did to Dudley in the bicycle shop, he should not be allowed access to the airwaves. Though having a guy of that ilk there is in keeping with what I know about people who run FM rock stations. This has been a very special episode of The Gist. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Mike Volo, host of Lexicon Valley, Slate's podcast about language. On our current episode, how did we go from 4 and 20 to 24? A brief history of expressing numbers in English. Search for Lexicon Valley in the iTunes store or visit slate.com slash podcasts.